I'm Jack Newton, CEO of Clio, and this is the Daily Matters Legal Podcast. This week on the show, we're taking a look back at some of the key themes, topics, and moments from our first 70 episodes. Each episode focuses on a different topic playing a central role in the future of the profession. Today, we're revisiting some powerful discussions we've had regarding access to justice and how we can create a better system for all. From episode 50, Hank Greenberg, former president of the New York State Bar Association. Well, Hank, on a recent post on the New York State Bar Association website, you wrote an excellent article. You quote the famed judge Learned Hand who said, thou shalt not ration justice. You commented in the article that truer words in the law may have never been spoken. Can, can you tell us a little bit more what you, what you mean by that and what that, that quote means to you? Sure. Uh, so the piece that you're refu- referring to, Jack, that was, that was issued pre-COVID-19. And in New York and around the country, um, we have long known we've had a um, justice, access to justice crisis. We refer to it as a access to justice or justice gap. Today, in light of COVID-19, we have a access to justice, justice Grand Canyon. The simple truth is, the undeniable fact is, that for the poor, the working poor, and even the middle class, being able to speak with a lawyer, consult with a lawyer, and obtain legal advice is difficult and in many cases impossible. We have legal aid societies in New York and across the country that do extraordinary work. Institutional legal service providers do extraordinary work. But before COVID-19, their resources were strained to the limit. And while lawyers in New York and across the country do extraordinary pro bono, um, and volunteerism and in COVID-19 in New York, and we can, I hope we get to talk about it a little bit, thanks in large measure to your assistance, Jack. We're seeing lawyers volunteering in great numbers, but institutional legal service providers and pro bono alone wasn't getting it done before COVID-19, and now can't possibly be expected to meet the justice needs. So, there's a, I think, acute appreciation of that now within the organized bar. At the last meeting of the American Bar Association in Austin, Texas, there was a resolution that I proudly was able to speak in favor of on behalf of the New York State Bar Association, calling for states, the individual laboratories of experimentation, and regulators across the nation to start exploring and inventing and thinking about innovative ways to deal with the justice gap, because the reality is we're moving backwards. There is less justice being dispensed to a growing number of Americans. That problem needs to be addressed. And if we see nothing from these protests, right, and these protests are expressing anger about the, among other things, the justice system's perceived failure to correct systemic problems. So it behooves the legal profession, it behooves all of society, but most especially lawyers, right, it seems to me, right now to be aggressive advocates for addressing the access to justice crisis. From episode 51, Leslie Ginzel, Chief of Holistic Services, Harris County Public Defender's Office. Between COVID-19 and the George Floyd protests and all, all the 
I think appropriate uh, frustration and anger we, we we have out there today. We've got, I think, access to justice highlighted in in more stark terms than we have in in recent memory. Uh, can can you tell us what you're seeing around access to justice in your role? You, you've talked about bits of of it over the course of our conversation, but I'm I'm wondering at a more holistic level, at a, a macro level, uh, what you think needs to to change at the various levels of of this system, and mm-hmm. and how we can move toward a, a system that is maybe more uh, more accessible. Mm-hmm. Well, we need more legal services, that's for sure. And I'm, my biggest, one of my biggest concerns right now is because of the financial crisis that a lot of funding is going to dry up and we can't afford to lose it. Um, one of the biggest factors on the, on the COVID-19 front that we've been talking about regionally is housing. Um, Harris County is second only in the United States in evictions to New York City. The big difference is New York City has a right to counsel. Harris County has no right to counsel. With a right to counsel, you are going to prevent 60% of evictions. With no right to counsel, 95% are default judgments move out, and there's no discussion. So we're going to have a landslide of evictions. Um, There are going to be a, a, a lot of people who are unemployed and going to need access unemployment benefits if possible. Um, We don't have the housing capacity for this low-income population. Um, That is going, the the, the face of homelessness is drastically going to change. That is my biggest concern right now. Um, The other large concern is around domestic violence and child abuse. Um, You cannot put uh, abusers trapped in homes with their spouses and children and expect good outcomes. And one of the biggest concerns on the education side is the teachers are who usually flag that stuff and the teachers aren't seeing the kids. So it's going to be interesting to see what outcomes come from that. Um, I think the biggest concern long-term is going to be employment and how people, how low income people who are living paycheck to paycheck in jobs that may no longer exist for some period of time are going to find their way back into the economy. uh, And what, what those effects will be and what the sort of trickle down of those of those jobs or lack thereof are going to be. From episode five, Mike Simanchik, managing attorney of the California Innocence Project. So beyond the impacts the California Innocence Project is seeing on itself, uh, what are, what impacts are you seeing COVID-19 have on uh, the people you represent? Yeah. Um, well, we have we actually have uh, a client that is set to be released. So the governor uh, commuted her sentence and made her instantly eligible for parole. She went to a parole hearing in November, and her release date is was set to is set to be the beginning of April. Um, and so we're hoping that she, perhaps the governor, will sign off on that uh, a week or two sooner, so she can go home, you know, ASAP and and avoid contracting the virus while while she's incarcerated. Um, so in, in terms of her, I mean, things are looking good. We've got a couple other cases that we've been um, speaking to the governor's staff about and hoping that the governor will step up and, and cut them loose, uh, you know, either commute their sentences or part, give them full pardons just to send them on their way. And uh, we're kind of still waiting uh, to hear back on a couple of those. So in terms of those clients, um, you know, we're, I mean, we're, op- we're cautiously optimistic that we can sort of see something happen sooner rather than later. The others, um, you know, the other clients that um, really we're not going to have any movement on, they're all kind of just super nervous, hunkering down and 
um, wondering. I mean, they're getting, they get less information than we do. So they're not sitting there scrolling through articles and reading through tweets and trying to figure out what's the best practice for how to, how to handle right. this. They get right. whatever's on cable news. So you get three or four channels and they're, they're kind of just seeing what's coming across the airwaves and seeing that a lot of people are getting sick and, and in fact dying from this. And, um, you know, they don't really have, um, you know, they essentially, they've got your, your high school nurse as their, their healthcare provider in, in these prisons. Um, they don't really have good way, a great way of cleaning, um, and, and trying to disinfect everything and they're stuck in small spaces. So if any one person gets it, then, um, you know, it's going to spread like wildfire. And we've seen that in, I think three prisons now in California, it's already happened. So from episode 47, Kristen Sonde, co-founder and COO of Paladin. So let's talk about the importance of eliminating that, that friction and improving the scalability of pro bono access, especially in the, the midst of the, the COVID-19 crisis. So the access to justice crisis was nothing new uh, before COVID-19 hit. And if anything, COVID-19 has uh, exacerbated the issues around access to justice. Can, can you speak a little bit to, from your perspective, what trends you're seeing, um, maybe how the, the landscape is changing and where we might expect some, some pain points to be coming down the, the pike when it comes to access to justice? So for a bit of context, the Legal Services Corporation published a report last year this is prior to COVID, of course, that said that 86% of legal needs on behalf of low-income Americans were not met. 86%. I mean, that is just an insane number. And that has increased from about 80% the year before. So we were already seeing the need for legal assistance on the rise um, before this crisis started. And then, as you alluded to, everything has been just exacerbated significantly. So I think at this point, we're up to 41 million plus Americans who have filed for unemployment insurance um, at some point since the pandemic started. Uh, yeah. We've seen a, a huge rise in evictions and landlord-tenant issues. So housing is a big area. Domestic violence is unfortunately on the rise. LSC just had a great forum a couple weeks ago talking about you know what legal services organizations are seeing on the ground and how they're... Um, handling uh, the increase in domestic violence situations. Um, and then also, I'd say there are, this is COVID specific, there are increased health risks we're seeing to certain populations. So incarcerated individuals and detained immigrants, um, we're starting to see become more and more affected, you know, physically um, by the pandemic. So there are just a ton of legal issues, you know, they, some have cropped up, um, especially as a result of the pandemic, others have just been exacerbated, but this is not going to go away anytime soon. And we actually expect to see an increase even six, nine, 12 months down the line as we see the second and third order consequences of what's happening now play out. So we're in this for the long term and we want to make sure that you know even though people attorneys are at the ready to do pro bono now we want to make sure that they continue to be mobilized over time um, because these situations unfortunately are not going to go away from episode 61 Catherine catcher and carmen garcia root and rebound yeah it feels like in so many ways the the default path is right back to to prison and it's this this self-perpetuating 
system. We, you know, we had Leslie, Leslie Ginzel on the show a couple of weeks ago and she's talking about the work she's doing in Texas. And it's amazing how what we might perceive as tiny barriers end up being these, these mountains to climb, whether it's something as simple as getting a name change done or getting a criminal record sealed or getting a driver's license, uh, despite the fact that you might have an accumulation of parking tickets. As trivial as that sounds, that's what stands between some people and a path to you know, a good life and a, a good person. And instead it feels uh, like they're condemned to, to perpetuating in this, this system. And I, I think so much of the thinking, one of the points you made, Catherine, I think is very important. And you know, we had Brian Stevenson speak at the Clio Cloud Conference uh, in 2018. And one of the statements he made that really resonated with me is asking the question, should we have a criminal justice system that defines people for life by whatever their worst action may have been at some point in their life. And that it feels like so much of the default answer for the way our current justice system works is the answer to that question is yes, you are defined by mm -hmm. the worst thing you may have ever done. And, and obviously the, the work your organization is doing is, is so important. You know, I'm curious seeing what you've seen on the ground and, and Carmen, your story is obviously a, a firsthand and, and really powerful one on, on what a different path can look like and how if we accommodate, uh, if we create a path to a new reality, there are people that can make that transition. Uh, it, it's possible. What are, what are some of the learnings that you've had on the ground that you might think would surprise people or change their perceptions around criminal justice reform and, and, and what you've seen on the ground? Well, I think, I know, just the, what we've been talking about a lot, right, which is like, when you have good choices, when, you're, when your spectrum is, you, have, you can make really great choices or eh -eh choices, that's kind of how I was set up in life. Even when I was making bad choices, they were still in the spectrum of good options. And there's a right. lot of people in this world who don't grow up with good options. And so I think... It's really fundamental what we're talking about in terms of human psychology, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, like what people need to survive, that when we give people opportunity and that the criminal justice system isn't disconnected from investing in our education system, investing in affordable housing, ensuring that um, employers are, are hiring from underemployed communities and making sure that there's diversity in the workplace, that actually the criminal justice system is and the way that people are treated is, is the kind of the culmination of all of these other systems not functioning for people. And so on the ground, what I see is that our work for the first time is giving a lot of men and women a little bit of that opportunity. We can't change the world. I wish we could. I wish we could ensure affordable housing, clean, clean air, uh, water, food for all families. And we try to do a lot of that. We have cash assistance funds. We were advocating for the DMV in California, which shut down for three months and wasn't giving anyone an ID when people were getting out of prison, anyone in the, anyone in the state. Um, yeah. We advocate for all these things to be in place. And when we do little things for people, like um, helping them understand their employment rights and write a resume and figure out how to talk about themselves and talk about mitigating factors and what happened to them and the choices they made and how they've changed. When we help people understand um, who in their community is providing transitional housing, like things do change that 
what I would say is it's holistic, like Carmen said, it's a systems wide approach. But, you know, we had one woman who got kicked out of school after a year and a half and $150,000 of debt um, in graduate nursing school because the school pulled her record a year and a half later. We were able to fight for her to get back in her school. She graduated with a, with a license and she's going to go on to become a nurse. And like, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is like the legal advocacy does work. The sort of social services resource provision does work. And we need to fight for like the system as a whole to change, like Brian Stevenson does, all these amazing people that think about what the setup is. Um, but I will say that like when we fight hard and we go deep and we provide support for people, we do change people's lives. From episode 56, Mark O'Brien, co-founder and executive director of Pro Bono Net. And Mark, one of the things you talked about is, is helping eliminate friction and, and support lawyers that want to become volunteer lawyers and help engage with pro, pro bono cases. And uh, over the course of the last few months with uh, events around the world over the last few weeks as well, we've seen, uh, I think so many lawyers put up their hands saying, I want to help out with these causes, but especially among solo and small firm lawyers that, that maybe don't have the benefit of a, a pro bono counsel that you might have in a larger law firm. Mm -hmm they're at a loss for, for how to engage and, and, and how to start giving back to the community through pro bono support. Can you describe some of the ways that the average lawyer in a solo small firm situation can engage in pro bono work? Sure. I mean, I, I think the first thing we have to do is sort of recognize that, you know, on the one hand, times of emergent need point to the importance of broadening participation mm -hmm. and in getting more lawyers engaged in doing pro bono work. Uh, Absolutely. It, it's also a time when it's, you know, almost hardest for the legal aid organizations that are, have the relationships on the ground with clients and are trying to uh, grapple and think about how they scale um, uh, their services um, uh, for them to, to actually stand up systems. And um, so some of it, I think, has to do with uh, those opportunities are to sort of know the organizations that are in your community. Um, uh, this will not be the last time <laughs> that we uh, have uh, emergent need. Um, some of it is to take the long view. There are opportunities. Uh, uh, there are, you know, whether it's through pro bono net, whether it's through some of the terrific work that the ABA in partnership with Paladin and Clio and other st uh, state bar partners have been doing to stand up uh, online portals to aggregate access to information about how to get engaged. Uh, but I think as in any other area that a lawyer is thinking of practicing, it's thinking about, uh, well, what do I need in order to be competent and be able to you know, help in this area? So some of it is about you know, getting yourself trained up, making, getting yourself familiarized, engage, uh, develop local relationships uh, with organizations, uh, and look for ways to support them uh, uh, in, in whatever ways you can in this time, and out of those relationships, find opportunities to, uh, to more deeply engage. From episode 11, Shaka Sanghor, New York Times bestselling author and president of Shaka Sanghor in the show notes. Do you see the COVID-19 crisis having any long-term impacts on the prison system, Shaka? 
Absolutely. I think it's going to have some long-term negative as well as some long-term positive. I think the positive is it's really allowing us to reimagine uh, what, to do, what, what purpose does the judicial system serve. And in the past, we've been so punitive. This is why we have so many aging uh, men and women inside prison who are really, really vulnerable, really susceptible uh, to any disease or any illness just based on their fragility right now. Um, but I think this is going. This is a defining moment for the world. You know, it's going to, you know, really say who we are. You know, when we think about those that, who are the most vulnerable. Um, but I think that politicians are seeing that it doesn't make sense to hold people in prison or jail. Jail. Let's just even start with jail. Uh, there's people sitting in jail because they couldn't afford a $500 fine. Like that's ridiculous. Like in a, in a country where. We know that poverty is a real thing, that people are being punished for being poor um, without even being convicted of a crime. And then, of course, right. you know, there's the reality that 90% of people, over 90% of people are coming out of prison at some point, and we just have to decide uh, how to treat them now uh, and, and so that we can help ensure that they come home healthy and whole. Shaq, I've really enjoyed this conversation. You've got so much to offer in terms of uh, a unique and powerful perspective on uh, how, how to deal with isolation, but I think also how to, to tackle some of the, the huge challenges you've, you've tackled over the course of your life. Uh, to, to conclude, do you have any, any parting thoughts to share with our listeners, either as, as, as lawyers or as, as human beings that you'd like to leave as a, a takeaway or a message? Absolutely. You know, we are in uncertain times, but the one thing that I am certain of is that every one of us who have the mobility, who have any kind of resources, uh, we can contribute something to ensuring that when we come out on the other side of this, that we come out better, that we come out smarter, that we come out more compassionate and empathetic. And it just starts with one single step. You know, everybody can contribute something. Uh, you know, you don't want to write something up Fine. Click on a link, you know, that I've written up to share it with people. You know, find other great material uh, that's inspiring and uplifting to share that with people. You know, offer a kind word, make a phone call, call somebody you haven't talked to in a while, just to check in and say how are you doing. Um, you know, contribute financially to these organizations who are doing incredible work. Like I don't get paid by any of these organizations. I just do it because so it's a passion thing for me. You know, I'm I'm, yeah. I'm really passionate about supporting men and women inside, but also our homeless population, like uh, people who are struggling with home security. There's great work happening around those issues as well, like with, with Glide Church in San Fran. Uh, they currently have a 10 to 1 match uh, where if you, rate, if you raise a dollar, there's a donor, uh, who's, you know, a friend of mine, Felicia Horowitz, he's offered to match that literally 10 to 1. You know, for every dollar you donate, she's donating 10. Uh, to feed people who wow. um, who don't have, you know, an option to, to get food. So there's so many great things we can do. Uh, what I found that's one of the greatest gifts you can give to yourself is supporting and helping each other. Uh, helpfulness is helpful to you as well. And so just do whatever you can to help support people during these tough times. Thanks for joining us on Daily Matters today, a podcast from Clio. Rate and review wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Daily Matters is produced by Andrew Booth, Sam Rosenthal, and Derek Bolin, and hosted by yours truly, Jack Newton. 
Thanks also to Clio, the world's leading cloud-based legal technology provider, for supporting this podcast. If you'd like to learn more about Clio, please visit clio.com. 